good to be with you guys today. Um, there it is. I uh, just wanted to say a couple things about the last two announcements that John made. One, uh, in regard to the video that you just saw with Advent Conspiracy, it's a yearly campaign that we do uh, at Christmas time where we really challenge ourselves not just to go with the flow of the Christmas season as it is in America, uh, but to think deeply about what it means to be a follower of Jesus in the midst of uh, this holiday season. And what that's looked like for us is a challenge to try to spend less monetarily so that we can spend more uh, in the ways that Jesus spent his uh, his gifts with us, which is to spend time with people, to give relational gifts with people. Um, and so there's a number of ways that you can do that. If you go to adventconspiracy.org, you can see all kinds of different resources on how to give gifts that cost less but actually give more. Um, and it's a great thing that to, to do for your family. And, and what we do together is with the margin that we create, because we're not just spending to spend, we take that margin and then we give it towards people uh, that actually do have needs uh, at, at this time of year. So John mentioned one way that we're doing that, which is the joy exchange, which is a very cool thing where you get to uh, send a picture of your family to a family in Haiti, uh, to our community in Shadrach that we're graduating, and then you'll get a picture in return from them, and then you'll have one another's picture decorated and everything, and then you can pray for one another, which is a really cool uh, thing to do. They get to be givers as well, because they're rich in ways that we're poor. Uh, so that's one way. And then the other way, we, what we're going to do, do, do with a lot of the, the money that we end up saving at Christmas time is we'll, we collect that together and we give it towards maybe a, a project that we wouldn't be able to see movement on if we didn't collect our resources together. And what we're going to do this year is we're going to devote that towards uh, clean water in our new community of Dijon's. And that's the, the number one project that they've got going on. They have a water source that comes into the community, but it's, it's clear but not clean. And, um, and so kids are getting sick, obviously, and, and those who are infirm are, are having their conditions exacerbated by the water source. And so uh, what a great gift it would be to clean that up as a, our first kind of statement in the community to say we're here uh, to, to help and to be um, your family. So, uh, so that's what we're going to do with the, the resources that we collect uh, this Christmas season. So be thinking about that. Um, on the other announcement, just as far as uh, Bob goes, we are uh, incredibly heartbroken um, uh, over his passing and, and just the, the rapid acceleration of, uh, of, of, of the cancer that, that um, he experienced. Um, but I, just, I was struck when I was watching the picture up there. What a great picture that was, wasn't it? I mean, just... Yeah. Awesome. It just it, it, here's the thing it does for me. It captures um, Bob's wonderment, and um, and that's uh, tomorrow. I've been invited to speak at his service, and I'm, I'm at first I didn't think I was going to be able to do that, and and um, fortunately some things have been moved around that I I can go and do that. Um, and what I, I the thing I want and I know not all of you can be there, but one of the things that I want his family to take away is just how much in a very short period of time this man fell in love with Jesus. It was just amazing to me to see, almost like off-putting, because you see someone who comes in, he starts, in a, he, like, a million questions all the time. That was Bob. And, um, and he, you know, he asked those questions because he really wanted to not just know the answers, he wanted to know Jesus, and he wanted to know what he was like, and, and he wanted to be able to walk with him and I remember when we were sitting back in this room before he was baptized on Easter Sunday and we were praying together and he just goes, I just can't believe it's true. I can't believe it's true. Like, he's alive. Like, he just couldn't believe it. He's like, and I'm going to be baptized because he lives and I, and I know him. And it's just, you know, the, the joy that, that uh, came over him um, at the thought of getting to walk with God like that, that God was always a distant figure and someone he would try to please throughout his life, but to get to like rest in him and know him. And now I just picture Bob, you know, sitting at the feet of Jesus, having every question answered, you know, like um, just, <laughs> just finding answers to every single question. He's got an eternity to do it. Um, so there's no sorrow 
when it comes to where, where Bob is today. Um, but if you'd pray for me as I share with his family tomorrow and pray for his family, that they would know that hope and joy too, I'd really appreciate that. Um, so, all that to say, uh, we're talking about family today. Uh, so it's a good good Sunday to do that. <clears throat> um, and we're entering into a new se- uh, series. It's a, a small series, but it's one that we do uh, every year. And this year we're, we're calling this series Catalyst um, because uh, here's what happens. When you, when you, like Bob, encounter the real Jesus, you can't go away unchanged. You, you can't go away without seeing transformation in your heart and in the hearts of the people that are closest to you and in the world around you. And that was certainly his story. In a very short period of time, someone who experienced deep transformation because they met the real Jesus. And that's what happens for us. In fact, if you, if you don't experience uh, movement, if you don't experience conviction and change and, and radical transformation then the God that you've encountered is a God of your own making. It's not the God of the Bible. It's not Jesus Christ, because Jesus Christ changes us deeply, uh, radically. And, and so when that happens to us, we don't just see that catalyzing effect that he does on our hearts, but we, we see that whatever God does to us, he wants to do through us. And the people around us, uh, start to experience the spark of that change that God does in our hearts. And that's the way that God works in the world. Um, and so in our last series, we talked about how Jesus' kingdom is an upside-down kingdom and how different that kingdom is from the kingdoms of this world. Um, but we'll never see Jesus' kingdom take root in this world until Jesus gets a hold of our hearts and we begin living out of the identity that he's given us. But the good news is when we start to do that, when we understand the radical nature of the changes that have gone on inside of us because of his work for us, we become change makers everywhere that we go. And that's what it means to be the church. So, so what does that look like? How, how, does that, how do we experience that? And what is the life that God has created us to live as we grow in our belief? Um, well, there's, there's a scene at the end of Jesus' earthly life. We covered kind of the beginning of his ministry for the last eight weeks, but we're going to look at the end of his life uh, on earth. And he calls his disciples together to himself. And if you remember at this point, he's gone to the cross for them. He, they've seen him suffer and die after walking with Jesus for three years, day and night, camping out, eating meals, listening to his teaching, watching him raise the dead, watching him heal the sick, watching him give sight to the blind, going, this, this man is what I want my entire life to be about. I will follow him to the end. And then Jesus meets his end himself. And they're going, what's going on? Like, I, I thought he was going to inaugurate this brand new kingdom. And now I'm seeing him hang on a cross um, and, and his life is being snuffed out. But then, of course, if you know the story, three days later, he, he conquers death itself. He rises from the grave. He appears to them and he says, I'm going to go and meet you in Galilee where, where this all began. And he goes, uh, Jesus, to, Jesus says, I'm going, to, I'm going to go to Galilee, so go there and I'm going to meet with you. And what do you think the disciples did? They're like, well, maybe we'll get over there like next week. Um, maybe if there's time... You know, I'll get around to meeting with the risen Jesus. Maybe um, if my schedule's open, if I don't have enough, you know, too many other things competing for my time. No, they, they drop everything. Like they, they're running with sandals and robes on like 50 miles from Jerusalem to Galilee to meet with Jesus. Because they realize like if, if Jesus is really alive, then everything has changed. Like, my life is not going to look the same ever again because this man who has taught me everything about what it means to live a full life is now living forever. I have to go and be with him. And that's what they do. So they run and they're together with him and Jesus uh, begins to share what becomes some of his last words to them on earth. And we uh, know them there in Matthew 28. 
Um, but this is what he says. Jesus came to them and he said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Think of that statement. Like, Jesus saying, like, all authority. Like, I, he starts with, here's what I, remember what I've done for you. I've conquered death for you. And, and I, I've come to you now and I have, I have all the authority to forgive your sins and to make you new and to send you out because I'm a king. You thought I was just an earthly king, but here's the deal. I'm the king of kings. I'm the Lord of lords. I'm the king of heaven. I'm the creator of the universe. Like, if that was the person who was going to give you marching orders for the rest of your life, you'd go, I'm going to listen, right? You wouldn't take it into advisement as though it were good advice among all the other sources of advice. You'd go, whatever Jesus is about to say is what I'm going to bank my entire existence on for the rest of the years that I have. This wouldn't be a side job. This is the thing that you were brought into Jesus' presence to hear. Okay, so, so imagine that as though you're standing on this mountain with the 11 disciples who are left, listening to these words of Jesus when he says, go and make disciples of all nations. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Like if you're a disciple at that point, you're going, all right, he's leaving, but he's staying. Like he's giving me a commission, so I'm supposed to go, but at the same time, he's going to be with me. And that would have been the best possible news you could ever hear Jesus say. You don't have to take a single step through the rest of this life without me being with you. Man, that's such good news. Now, what are we supposed to do with Jesus? Okay, Jesus is coming with us. We are, we are walking through this life. We are going. What are we supposed to be doing as we go? And what Jesus says is surprising. He doesn't say, go and teach people right from wrong, and then when they get it, they'll know me. He doesn't say, go and teach them all the rules, and if they obey the rules, then they'll be good as far as they're concerned with God. Now he says, go and immerse people in their new identity. Baptize people in a new understanding of what God is like. See, I, I think we get that flipped around as the church. We want people to clean their lives up and look respectable. And then when they do a good job of that, they can come through the doors. And that's not what Jesus says. Jesus says, you go to them in the messiness of their life and you proclaim news that transforms and watch when that happens because they'll start to live a different life. Um, We've said this before, but baptism isn't just getting people wet. Um, once in their life, it's immersion. It's, an, it's literally a naming ceremony. Um, it's where you get a new name, a new identity, and that new identity becomes the real you, the true you, from that point on. So circumstances change, we change, life changes, relationships change, everything changes. Here's what doesn't change. When you're baptized into the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, you get a new identity, and that new identity is now true of you regardless of what the rest of your life looks like. That's the good news of the Gospel. And it's a celebration. It's a celebration of a new identity based on what not what you do for God, but what God has done for you. Um, the, the word baptize in Greek means to saturate something so that it takes on the full characteristics of whatever it's immersed into. So if you have a white cloth and you baptize it into blue dye and you take it out, guess what? It's never white again. doesn't matter how much you wash it, it's always going to have some remnants of that blue dye in it. And that's what baptism is. It's to be immersed into what God has done for you so that you have a new identity, that his 
as just as Jesus was buried and rose again, all that is true of Jesus as God's Son now gets transferred to you as though you were the one to do it, even though you didn't. You get a new name. Uh, Jesus, this was his prayer in John 17. He said, before leaving this earth, I pray also that those who believe in me through their message, he's talking about the disciples, that all of them may be one Father just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. Like that's Jesus' prayer for us, that, that we would be indistinguishable from the Father because we're new. And that we would live out of our newness. That we'd be so saturated with God's presence Himself that people would just notice there's something different about you. Um, I don't know if you know this, but think about every time someone's name gets changed in the Bible. Right? Someone goes from one name to another name. What is that all about? Like Abraham. He didn't start out as Abraham. His name was Abram. And he gets changed to Abraham. Do you know what Abraham means? Father of many nations. How many kids did he have at that point? Zero. Like, wait. <laughs> like, aren't you supposed to get like the title after you do the work? <laughs> right? Like, you, you, you do a good job and then because you've done the work, you get the, the, the title that says who you are? Not in God's family. It doesn't work that way. God gives you a new title before he gives you the ability to walk in that title. And that's all of us need that because if it were on us to do it first, there, we'd all be without hope. We wouldn't be able to live up to it. And so God does something to us. He renames us. He gives us a new identity. And, now, and then He says, okay, now with my power, walk this new, de- new identity out so that what, I, what I've done to you, now I'm going to do through you. But the work to change you and the work to use you, it's all my work. It's not your work. So you can rest in me. See, that's why Jesus puts it in that order. Because he says, if you immerse people in the name of the Father, the name of the Son, the name of the Holy Spirit, then when you teach them what it looks like to walk that out, they will obey. That's why Jesus says, if you love me, you'll obey my commands. He's not talking about just following his rules. He's saying, look, if, if you really do love me, then you'll receive it to such a degree that you'll obey what I tell you. And you won't just be following my rules, you'll be living out my heart. And that's what God wants for us. So what does that look like? We, we use the, the symbol of the Trinity to talk about what that looks like for us in a practical way. Are all the, they are up there. Hey, good. Um, that, that we are baptized, we're immersed in the name of the Father, the name of the Son, the name of the Holy Spirit. So we take three weeks to look at each one of those things uh, and cast a vision for what that's going to look like for us as a church in the next year. And so today we're going to talk about what it means to be baptized in the name of the Father. And if God is our Father, then we are His children. We are His family. So how do we know what it means to be God's family? Well, let's take a look. So we'll take a look at this kind of briefly from the beginning of God's story to the end. But if you look at the very beginning of God's story, the very first family, it gives us a picture of what our family identity is supposed to look like. So in Genesis 1, very beginning of the Bible, not all the verses are going to be up here, but just follow along with it. Um, It says this, Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and he said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. And then God said, I will give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that is fruit with seed in it. 
They will be yours for food. And all the beasts of the earth and the birds in the sky and the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has breath, the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food, and it was so. And God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. So if you're new here, we often dialogue over what the scriptures are, are telling us, but what do you see in there when it comes to our family identity? At the very beginning, what do we learn about what it looks like to be a family with God as our Father? Yeah, we're made in His image, so we carry on the family likeness. Which means if, if God is generous, then we are generous. If He's loving, then we're loving. As He provides for us, we provide for the, the, the earth around us. So we're to be caretakers, just like God is a caretaker to us. What else? Yeah. I know, right? Yeah, like the word every just pops up over and over and over again. I give you everything, everything, everything. It's all yours. Like it's all at your fingertips. So we're to live as, with God as our good provider, Right? We're to look to him for our provision in everything, knowing that that he can be trusted. Great one. What else? What do you see between the man and the woman? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, there's there's love there. I mean there. They're, they're extending the love that God has for them, right? So they're, they're, how do they, I mean, in some sense, it's like, how, how is it confirmed for the man and for the woman that they have a good heavenly dad who loves them deeply? He gave them a, 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 a counterpart to be what they're not so that they can both give love and receive love with that person. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so continue to be fruitful. Just as I've created you, I've given you the ability to continue to create just as I've created. And so like think about like the perfect union of a man and a woman uh in a lifelong commitment coming together to multiply God's image bearers. Like that tells you something about the 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 that God made uh, humans, not out of out of spite, out of anger, out of resentment, but out of generosity and love. That just as a mom and dad create a baby and fawn over that infant and love that infant and care for that person and, and shepherd them and guide them as they grow up in life, God has been doing that and that's his intention that he would do that for us. Yeah. Yeah, it's very good. Right. Yes, the only designation in the whole uh, poetic beginning of of this story that gets that designation. It's very good. Yeah. One of the things that kind of struck me. All right. Yeah. So so we're made out of the substance of the earth, which means our our destiny is tied to it. Right. We have a. And I think part of the reason God does that is because we have a responsibility with this earth. We can't just say, oh, well, if the earth goes to pot, like who the heck cares? No, like as his image bearers, we're to, we're, we, our, our, um, our destiny is completely tied with the destiny of the earth. So as it goes, so will we go. And, and so we have a, a shepherding and a creation responsibility over it. We can't just forsake that, right? Um, and this is the life that we were designed for. And this is the, the reason that family is so important even today is because a family that's oriented around our Heavenly Father is what we were built for. And this is exactly what we had in the beginning, a sin-free world where we had relationship with God, relationship with one another, and relationship with the world. And all of those things are marked by joy and peace. 
Now, it doesn't take long for things to break down. <laughs> and they unravel. And, and we I'll summarize it for us, but the story of Adam and Eve, the first human beings, is that they, they rebelled against their creator. They didn't trust that he was a good source of provision. They, they rebelled against their responsibility as children of God, and they wanted to be their own masters in a sense. They, they were deceived into thinking that they didn't need God in order to live a full life, that they could do it themselves, and they could be independent people. And then, so they, they end up trusting in themselves, and they end up saying, we can be our own providers, and we can love ourselves better than He can love us. And the consequences for our family identity from that walking away from God is incredible. I mean, it's, it's enormous. It touches every area of life. If we were to look at the story, you see that they go from loving one another to blaming one another. They go from caring for the world to, to needing to care for themselves and not giving a rip about what happens to the world. They go from being naked and unashamed before God to, have, to, to being fully ashamed and having to hide themselves in their sin. I mean, think about the ramifications of, of what I just said on the way that people live their lives even today. Is that not an apt description for what life looks like, particularly when it comes to the family? I mean, you think about most families and the way they operate. And, and they're, they're completely marked by selfishness and strife and separation. It's, I mean, you want evidence of this, so just, you know, walk out the doors and you'll see it. Turn on your TV and you'll see it. In fact, so, some of the, the world's greatest entertainment these days is watching the real-life breakdowns of family relationships. I'm thinking of one that begins with a K. I mean... This is, it's everywhere in our society. That when we look around our families, when we look around our neighborhoods, we see neglect and abuse, we see fatherlessness, we see lying, we see abandonment, adultery, divorce, everywhere. Everywhere you go. And even the families that somehow manage to hold themselves together through this life, there's still conflict. And there's still bitterness and there's still pain and the wounds run deep, don't they? But here's what you need to know. God has not given up on the family. He hasn't given up on creating a family. In fact, He he wants to redeem this idea of family for us. And the way that we know that is because deep down you know that you were created to experience this kind of family. And so when Jesus comes along and he says, look, I want you to baptize them in the name of the Father, he's saying there is a new way to live out this identity of family as God's family. That this is, this is now available to everyone. And I want you to go and spread the good news of this to the people that you come in contact with. That, that God, your Father, has made a way for it to happen. Now how did it happen? We studied this back in the spring in Ephesians 1, verse 5 and 6. It says, For God, He chose us in Him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in His sight. In love, He predestined us for what? Adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with His pleasure and will. Now, you might be thinking, like, I'm a a woman. I'm not a son. Like, do we all have to be sons? Like, what is that all about? Well, it, it... in this culture, sonship meant first son. And if you were the firstborn son in a family, you got all of the family inheritance. I mean, it kind of stunk to be a second son <laughs> or a daughter because you're, you're just hoping that you're, the first son shares a little bit of his wealth with you as the second and third and fourth. But the family poured all of its resources into the first son and says, this is the one who's going to carry on the name and the identity and the purpose of our family. Now guess who, guess who the first son is in, in God's family? It's Jesus Christ. And what did Jesus do with all the riches that were poured into him? 
He gave them all away. He wasn't a stingy first son that says, you guys have to fend for yourselves. No, he said, I lay down my life as the first son. I'll actually become an, an enemy of God's family. I will, I, I will walk away from the love of the Heavenly Father. I'll have all the sin of the world and all the children that came after me poured out on me so that they can have sonship in my absence. That's what the cross is about. And what Paul says in Ephesians 1 is that God did that according to His pleasure and His will, that God loves to give that away. That it was His plan to do that. And then in fact, if you keep reading, it's to the praise of His glorious grace, which He has freely given us in the one He loves. Do you know how much God the Father loved Jesus? The perfect, only Son of God. I can't imagine. Greater than any father ever loved any son. And he gave him up freely so that enemies like us who walked away from God could be called home and loved like children again. That's amazing, right? That God... Not only that he would do that and love to do it, but that he would pay the cost to do it. That before the foundations of the world, he, he, his heart, his affection was set on you to, to, to welcome you home and to pay the cost that it, that, that it was necessary to, to ransom you back into the family. So I, those of you who have been through adoption or you have family members that have been through adoption, you know that the costs are incredible. Incredible. Here's what I'm learning in the foster system. The costs are incredible, but they're not monetary. There is incredible cost to pay in, our, in your time, in your money, in your energy, in your tears, in your patience. Incredible cost to pay to welcome children in who have no connection to you and to call them sons and daughters. But that cost is nothing. Nothing. In fact, God will never call you to a cost greater than the one He bore for you. And this adoption for you is free, not because it was free to him. It cost him everything, but it costs you nothing. It's freely given to you, and he does so because he loves you. And so there's nothing left for you to do but receive it, to come home, to say, I accept it, God. I, I, this is the, the love that I've waited my entire life to hear and to receive. You mean to tell me I can just say yes to it and that it's mine forever? Yes. And the reason I can say that with certainty is because of what John says in John 1. And John says in John 1, verse 12 and 13, For all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children not born of natural descent nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. Later in, in John's letter, he says to the church in 1 John 3.1, See what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. And that's what we are. That's what you are if you're in Christ. You're a child and nothing will remove that from you. You can't be unadopted. Imagine, I mean, how radically different life could look if that was your daily um, understanding of your own identity. It would change absolutely everything about you. You'd walk around like I'm convinced Bob did, going, I can't believe the king of the universe calls me his son. I can't believe I get to call him daddy. How does that work? You just I can't believe it's true. You just be completely dumbfounded all the time. 
And that's a mark of, of whether or not you have come into the knowledge of this truth in its reality, in its fullness. Because Paul says in Galatians 4, 6, and 7, because you are sons, God sent the Spirit of His Son into your heart, the Spirit who calls out, Abba, Father, so that you're no longer a slave but a son. Here's what God does. On the cross, Jesus Christ paid for your sins. And, and His perfect life was given for your imperfection. And when that exchange happened and He took on your sins, you get clean. Cleansed from the inside out. Just like the temple of God was clean from the inside out. The place where God dwelled. And what the Scriptures tell us is that now in Christ, you are the dwelling place of God. That God puts, because your heart is now clean in the work of Jesus, He puts His Spirit in you. And now everywhere you go, you have the Spirit of the One who cries out from your heart to His, God, you're my dad. I mean, it's as simple as this. Are you able, when you think about God, to think of him as your loving, intimate dad who wants the best for you even if you try to squirm away from him? Or do you think somehow he's displeased with you? That you haven't lived a a good enough life, a moralistic enough life, that you don't go to church often enough or pray enough or read your Bible enough, that he's somehow displeased with you? I mean, if, if that's your, the way that you think about God in totality, it means you either don't have His Spirit yet or you're not listening to the Spirit that you have. Because His Spirit calls out to that God and says, Daddy, I need you. This is, this is one of the indications I look for when I'm discipling someone to faith in Jesus. I'll ask them, what is God like to you? When you think about Him, when you walk with Him, when you pray to Him, what are the words that you use? And if they, can, if they struggle with this idea of just thinking about Him or calling Him Dad, I know that they don't have it yet. You're His sons. You're His daughters. You're His firstborn kids. Now, if this is true of you, like I said, this doesn't this changes everything. This changes your vertical relationship with God, but it also changes all of your horizontal relationships. That if you're in the family of God, then it changes the way that you live your life alongside other people. Because now all these other people who were at once all of you simultaneously enemies with God and living out that enmity with one another, now who are they? They're your brothers and sisters. They're either the reconciled brothers and sisters who know about their dad and now you share that experience with them or they're people that don't yet know of this identity and aren't living it out yet. They're like long lost kids. There are only two options. That's why Jesus says you're able to actually love your enemies because even your enemies are unreconciled children. They just don't know that they have the love of a heavenly father that wants to bring them back into the family. 1 John 4 puts it this way, Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. This is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. See, that's the horizontal. The vertical is that we receive God's love. The horizontal is that we give it away. And we should love one another with the same love that we've been loved with. Now let me ask you this. When most people hear the term church, what do they think of? Do they think of this? Or do they think of something else? Even if people are neutral on the church... The term, as I've had conversations with people, that they think of over and over and over again is a building and a service. Right? I mean, it's not that they, even if they don't have a bad impression of what those things are, 
that tends to be what most people think of as a weekly event where people gather to sing some songs and listen to the Bible, pray a little, and have sort of cordial relationships with people that they sit in rows alongside. Now, I'm not coming down on that as being an expression of the church, but can you see how far short that experience, if that is the only experience that we have, how far short that falls of the life that God intended for us, if, if, if we really are family? I mean, n- not even any family in the world gets together uh, to listen to somebody else talk and sit in rows and never talk to one another. I don't know any Thanksgiving dinners that work that way. Do you? but what people long for what you long for is a true family it's a rich community of brothers and sisters that say look we got to be with one another and we got to be with one one another often because this is what we crave this is what we were designed for this is what God had in mind in the garden all those years ago This is the the community that Jesus died to to form. If we're not experiencing it, then we're falling short of what we're we're intended to experience. God doesn't want to just slap us upside the head and go, oh God, I I wish you would get your life in order and make this a priority. That's not it. But as a dad, he longs for you to experience more maybe than what you're experiencing. This is the whole reason. This is what I'm learning. I've always said it this way. I've always said that the church is like a family, and I'm not using that the, that language anymore. I'm trying to take hold of my language because words mean things, right? Uh, and and I want my words to reflect the reality of what God is actually like. And so this is what I'm saying these days: the church is a family. It's not like a family. Like a family means you can like walk away from it without letting people know that you're walking away from it. No, the church isn't like a family. It is a family. And God wants us to be a family. And, and when you're part of a family, that means you belong to that family. You belong to the one who brought you into the family and you also belong to the other people that are part of that family. You're not of yourself anymore. You don't get to make all your life choices according to the way that you want to make them anymore. You have to consider the family that's impacted by your choices. That's the way families work. And we're a family. And we're a family not because we have a common skin color or a common gender, or a common race, or a common social class, or even a common cause. We have a common Savior that brought us in and adopted us as sons and daughters. That is the central focus point of our family existence. Is the grace of the firstborn Son, Jesus Christ, and it's the longing to be part of the table that He set for us. Now, can I just ask this brainstorm with me? A few of us leaders did this already, so maybe you guys can speak up uh, most loudly, but other, others as well. What would it look like for us as a church to function as a family? Yeah, yeah. So we'd be responsible for one another. And when we see someone stumbling, we'd say, it's my job to pick them up. When someone's celebrating, it's my job to celebrate with them because that's what family does. It's great. Thank you. What else? Yeah. Yeah, love and encourage. Yeah, right. We can't we can't create change in people, but we can break up the ground, <laughs> right? Um, through encouragement, through challenge, through calling one another back to our identity. 
That's, that's what a family is supposed to do, right? When you're living in a way that's incongruent with your family identity, it's everybody else's job in the family to go to that person in love and say, hey, you're not living out the, 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 family, the, the family purpose, the family name. We want to call you back to your senses. You don't have to live this way anymore. You don't have to live in isolation. You don't have to experience loneliness. Like there's a family waiting for you. You don't have to live in sin. God, God gave you a spirit that wants to lead you out and we'll pray and ask that he would do that. Yeah. Yeah. We would consider our relationships in the family over and above the responsibilities that we have, right? I'd say God has called me to faithfulness. Not, not as a burden, but as a blessing. That, that if God actually knows best and he's creating a family and what it means to flourish in life is to live out our family identity, then we would trust his words more than our own reality. So like when, when we're having like a crazy busy week and I've had tons of these lately where it's like I, 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 haven't, even, I haven't had time to premiere my heart or my home or, or anything like for, for our church family to come over and to experience family time that I just go, you know what? God calls me to walk in this and to, to even if I come with nothing, I'm st- like we still have to be faithful to one another because that's going to lead me to life. Not getting the three things that are at the bottom of my checklist done. So I'm going to put those aside as an act of obedience to my good father and I'm going to give myself to community. Because it leads to life. Because we're a family. What else? Yeah. Oh, down here and then back here. Yeah. Right, so, and, and I, I, that's a great point, Laura, because a lot of us, have, we come into the family of God with the experience of our earthly family, right? And there's, that's just the way that we come. So we have to, we, in, in a lot of ways, our previous experience has to be deconstructed, and we need a new, ident- a new understanding of what it looks like to live out this family. And, and who's the model for what it looks like to live out the family? The firstborn son. So like he's the he's the example of what it looks like for us to live live this out, and so if we're if if our experience is that we're living in a different kind of way because of our experience of a previous our earthly families, then we need a change of mind, because when it comes to accountability, as an example, we have a, a, an older brother who leaves the ninety nine to track down the one. He's setting an example for us as a family. He's saying, this is what it looks like to be my brother. You track down the one too. Because they're accountable to you and you're accountable to them. I'm sorry, one back. I think Vera had her hand up. Pray for each other? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so prayer would be integral, right? Because it's not just... We don't just have horizontal relationships, but we have the vertical relationship too. And we have, God is a part of our fellowship. He's active in our family. And the more that we demonstrate that through prayer, the more that we're showing we need Him to be active in our family. We can't just love each other uh, in our own love. Like we need to receive His love in order to love one another. And you get that through prayer. John, what were you going to say? suffer together yeah 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 we would suffer with one another sometimes suffer for one another yeah yeah so open with with two-way communication and open and honest with our needs so that others in our family could lift up the burdens of those needs Either lift them up physically because they have the resources to do it, or if they don't have the physical resources to do it, they bring it before our Heavenly Father because He does have the resources to deal with it. But we can't do that for one another if we're not honest with one another. I mean, there's all kinds of things that could come to mind, right? 
that we'd sacrifice for one another, sacrifice our stuff and our time. Most families that I know of don't all look the same. And so if, if we really are a family and not just like a family, then some of our deepest relationships will be with people that aren't in the same stage of life as us. That's a challenging one for me. Because I get along really well with the people that look like me and have kids like I have kids. But if we're really a family and Jesus is the center hinge point of that family, then that means that some of my closest relationships should be with people that are at a different stage of life than I am. Because I need them and they need me. I'm convinced that it would look a lot like Luke's description of the church in the book of Acts when he says this, that all the believers were together and they had everything in common. They sold their property and possessions to give to anyone that had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and they ate together with glad and sincere hearts. Praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people and the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. It's a great description, right? I know so many churches that lift up that description. They go, oh, if only we could experience that. Wouldn't it be great? And I think the Spirit is saying to us that that experience is not just descriptive of the first church, but it should be normative of everyone. That if we're not experiencing that in some degree, then we're missing out on what God intended for us. There's a couple things that you see in there. I just wanted to touch on these real briefly, but when when you see the the church, and and these are so important because when a a community is living out its gospel identity as a family, it means that we're free. The first thing that we're free, uh, free to be is we're free to be ourselves in that community. Like, we're free to get off the rat race of trying to like impress everyone around us and we can come with our frailty and our brokenness and our messed up lives and be okay because our place at the table isn't because we've been good but because Jesus has been good for us. And so we're free to just be ourselves. We're free to confess our sin. We're free to confess our weakness. We're free to come broken and weak and doubting and discouraged and depressed and hurting and flawed. And if you think you've got to show up and leave and check all those things at the door, then you're not understanding your family identity correctly. That's good news. We're free to be ourselves. We're also free to experience the gospel with flesh on. That, do you realize this? That like, in order to understand what it means to be God's family, you actually have to be in a family? Like you actually... You can't just hear about it being taught on Sunday morning. You actually have to live it in order to understand it. And we're free to do so. And that's the gospel with flesh on. It's the gospel with, with brothers and sisters that we are actually in an environment where we're able to encourage one another and receive encouragement. We're able to experience the joys and the pain of life. We're able to pray and to be prayed for, to, to gather and scatter, to be needy and needed at the same time. Are you experiencing that kind of environment? Because if you're not, again, you're living in a way that, that, that is less than what God has intended for you. And the last one is that when we're in a community that lives out its family identity, we're free to extend this family to others. We're free to extend this family to others. I mean, think about this community in the book of Acts. These like natural enemies who love one another because God first loved them in Christ. Right? I mean, these people weren't together because like they were all going to get together anyway on a Saturday night. (laughs) They're they're together because and only because of Jesus. They they would have hated one another. But now they're a family together and they're trying to wrestle with what that looks like and they're sharing everything and they're, they're praying for one another and they're meeting in the temple courts and they're meeting in homes throughout the week. They're living out all the one another's that Jesus instructed them to live out. And what was the effect of this kind of family 
on the rest of the city. It was infectious. People were like, what is going on over there? Those guys didn't get along at all last week and now they're crying together and they love each other. Like, who does that? Jesus' people do that. It has an infectious uh, effect on on people who only have understood what it means to be part of a broken family and now they're seeing the family that we were all intended to experience. My experience has been that this same idea is, is just as true today as it was then. And in fact, um, as sociologists have done work and study uh, in the West, and particularly in America, here's what they've discovered. 70% of people that don't have an experience with the church are absolutely not interested in attending any kind of Sunday church service. 70%. So the people that you know and that you work with and that you're in your neighborhood and everything else... If you were to extend an invitation and say, hey, come with me on Sunday morning, they would go, yeah, I don't, I'm not really interested in that. That doesn't mean that you shouldn't do that, and it doesn't mean that they're not interested in Jesus. Because even if 30% of the people say yes, that's a good enough percentage to me to offer an invitation, isn't it? To come on Sunday? That's a good, I mean, if 70%, like if 7 out of every 10 turn me down, but 3 come, you're still doing pretty well. Like, that's a good thing to do. But at the same time, we have to understand that people are made for a family. They're interested in what Jesus has to say about what a family looks like, but they need to experience it in a different format. I I love what Russ Johnson has to say about this. He says, We believe the answer begins with the reality that the church is simply the body of Christ in the world. It's who we are, not something that we do or go to. Throughout the New Testament, we see this belief at work. This universal body carried a message of freedom to an enslaved world through smaller church families. And these smaller church families were free to flourish alongside the interests and rhythms of the people they were discipling. And as the family grew, new families formed to make room for the others to experience the same freedom and family they had. I love how simply he puts it because that, and what he says resonates deeply with me because I've had a lot of conversations with people that have no understanding what it means to be the church. And when I talk about Sunday mornings, their eyes glaze over. And I'm like, if I'm one of the best communicators that we've got, and I'm the one primarily up here preaching the gospel, and, and when I... I'm talking to them about this environment and the fact that I'm going to be the one doing it and their eyes are glazing over. That should tell me something. Now, I was having one of these conversations with the mom of a friend of our boys and we were invited over for dinner. And she asked us what our church was like and I started to talk about Sundays. And again, I, you know, it sounds like every other church, doesn't it? But then I said, you know... One of the things that makes our church really um, our church, we believe that God has, has uh, been forming us in, it's just the idea that, that God wants us to be a family. And so a lot of our church environments, yeah, it happens on Sunday morning, but it happens throughout the week too. And he said, here's what it looks like. It's a group of really broken people that love Jesus, and they get together and they share a meal to give thanks to the one that made them a family. And then we talk about this Jesus and his hope. And we just share life with one another. We celebrate when people have celebrations and we mourn with people that mourn and we pray for one another but because we're a family and we're responsible for one another. And, um, and, and, and we look forward to that. And as I talked to, started to talk about that, her mouth, I noticed her mouth dropped. And she goes, that sounds really great. And her story is one where she longs to be in a family, but we've found that her experience hasn't been her experience alone. We've had a, another woman um, who's, who's been part of our neighborhood that's been joining our group for some time, and she cooked dinner for us on Friday when we got together. Because she's intuitively understanding, okay, if this is a family, then everyone contributes. Can I make the meal? We said, sure. 
But she got so much joy out of being able to bring a meal and to give back to the people that have been giving to her. And she's growing and she's tapping into what it means for the church to be a family. See, the gospel makes absolutely no sense to people unless they see it with flesh on. Because we as a community are the medium of the message. The way some people put it is that they have to belong to a family before they can believe in the one who created that family. And that's what we're to do. Now, I just want to close with this and just say um, briefly that um, we've tried to make a few changes to help us grow in that family identity this year. Some of them have been under the radar, but just, just so you know, these have been intentional shifts for us that we've tried to do to help us grow in our family identity. One of those things is that we've um, been praying before our Sunday gatherings every Sunday, and Pete's been leading that effort, that a group of people gathers together to pray to our Heavenly Father, to ask Him, hey, God, what's, Dad, what's on your heart for your family? What do you want us to know? Um, and there's a community of people that's been doing that with Pete. If you want to join that, just show up at 9 a.m. and go down to the library. That's all. Um, another one of the ways that we've been doing that is instituting listening prayer and sharing during our gatherings. That God, because he's a good dad, he gives gifts to all his kids and, and there are things that he wants to say to us and there are things that he wants to say through us. And so that we, we've been giving a platform for God to speak through all of us, not just me. And Matthew's been leading that charge. That's been an intentional shift. Now here's some things that are coming as far as changes so that we're ways that we're hoping to grow in the way that we function as a family. Um, One of those things is on December 23rd. We've been trying to figure out what to do with our Christmas um, gatherings because we have a Christmas Eve gathering on the 24th, but that puts two times back-to-back on the 23rd and then the 24th. So on the 23rd, uh, we are going to do a Christmas brunch gathering. So we're going to gather as a family um, probably downstairs. Uh, and instead of, you know, when we do a breakfast before, we've always done like the meal is kind of like the appetizer and then we come upstairs for like the real time. Um, but the downstairs time is going to be the real time. So we're going to gather not in rows but around tables and we're going to do things like a family and, and experiment a little bit with the Sunday gathering as a meal. Uh, the other thing that we're doing is is um, is something that we've called a catalyst group. Um, and again, since the church is not like a family, it is a family, uh, it means that we uh, need, I think, to grow in the way that our groups function like families. Uh, consistently, when we've asked the question about these three identities, which one are we strongest in, the one that we're always the strongest in um, whenever we've talked about this is the family identity. But I think we've got room to grow. Uh, and, and so one of the ways that we've been doing that is, is that we are gathering all of our group leaders back together into a group experience that we've called a catalyst group. And in that catalyst group, we're retraining them on how to be a family. And when I say family, I mean um, something like a regionally clustered, intergenerational, gospel-centered group that's inclusive of non-believers. That's a mouthful. (laughs) Regionally clustered, intergenerational, gospel-centered group that's inclusive of those that don't yet know Jesus. Now, we're going to pack all that that entails in 2019 um, but we believe that it's God's vision for us that, that, that we would see South Jersey filled with these kinds of families who love one another and love those that are coming into contact with God. And so we're, we're retraining all of our group leaders on what that could look like and reforming them in it. So let me just encourage you and challenge you as we close. I'm sorry for going over. One, if you don't know the love of the Father, please do not wait even one more moment to experience it. Um, We're going to pray in a moment. If you want to receive prayer, please come down to the front and and get it. If you've never been baptized before, we're doing it on November 25th. So please, um, if you know the love of the Father, if you're interested in that, come and be baptized. 
if you do know the love of the Father, but you're not actively living it out in a family with other brothers and sisters in community, begin praying about where the Spirit is leading you next year. We're going to talk about that more. And while you're praying, please also pray the Spirit would put on your heart anyone that needs to experience that family. If you want examples, come and talk to us because we've got boatloads. Okay? Let's pray. Father, thank you that you've made us from enemies to children. We take that for granted as we were praying earlier this morning. Just the fact that we get to call you dad. We start our prayers by saying father is incredible. That you love us, that you care for us, that you long for us to walk with you. And you want us to grow in this family identity so that we would live it out.